This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 9, Chapter 4, Nicholas Nickleby, Part 2 Everything has a supreme moment and is crucial. That is where our friends, the evolutionists, go wrong. I suppose that there is an instant of midsummer as there is an instant of midnight, if in the same way there is a supreme point of spring, Nicholas Nickleby is the supreme point of Dickens' spring. I do not mean that it is the best book that he wrote in his youth. Pickwick is a better book. I do not mean that it contains more striking characters than any of the other books in his youth. The Old Curiosity Shop contains at least two more striking characters. But I mean that this book coincided with his resolution to be a great novelist, and his final belief that he could be one. Henceforward his books are novels, very commonly bad novels. Previously they have not really been novels at all. There are many indications of the change I mean. Here is one, for instance, which is more or less final. Nicholas Nickleby is Dickens' first romantic novel, because it is his first novel with a proper and dignified romantic hero, which means, of course, a somewhat chivalrous young donkey. The hero of Pickwick is an old man. The hero of Oliver Twist is a child. Even after Nicholas Nickleby, this non-romantic custom continued. The old curiosity shop has no hero in particular. The hero of Barnaby Rudge is a lunatic. But Nicholas Nickleby is a proper, formal, and ceremonial hero. He has no psychology, he has not even any particular character, but he is made deliberately a hero, young, poor, brave, unimpeachable, and ultimately triumphant. He is, in short, the hero. Mr. Vincent Crumless had a colossal intellect, and I always have had a fancy that under all his pomposity he saw things more keenly than he allowed others to see. The moment he saw Nicholas Nickleby, Almost in rags and limping along the high road, he engaged him, you will remember, as first walking gentleman. He was right. Nobody could possibly be more of a first walking gentleman than Nicholas Nickleby was. He was the first walking gentleman before he went on to the boards of Mr. Vincent Crumless Theatre, and he remained the first walking gentleman after he had come off. Now this romantic method involves a certain element of climax, which to us appears crudity. Nicholas Nickleby, for instance, wanders through the world. He takes a situation as assistant to a Yorkshire schoolmaster. He sees an act of tyranny, of which he strongly disapproves. He cries out, Stop! in a voice that makes the rafters ring. He thrashes the old schoolmaster within an inch of his life. He throws the schoolmaster away like an old cigar, and he goes away. The modern intellect is positively prostrated and flattened by this rapid and romantic way of righting wrongs. If a modern philanthropist came to Dothboys Hall, I fear he would not employ the simple, sacred, and truly Christian solution 
of beating Mr. Squeers with a stick. I fancy he would petition the government to appoint a royal commission to inquire into Mr. Squeers. I think he would every now and then write letters to newspapers, reminding people that, in spite of all appearances to the contrary, there was a royal commission to inquire into Mr. Squeers. I agree that he might even go the length of calling a crowd meeting at St. James Hall on the subject of his best policy with regard to Mr. Squeers. At this meeting some very heated and daring speaker might even go the length of alluding sternly to Mr. Squeers. Occasionally even hoarse voices from the back of the hall might ask in vain what was going to be done with Mr. Squeers. The Royal Commission would report about three years afterwards and would say that many things had happened which were certainly most regrettable, that Mr. Squeers was the victim of a bad system, that Mrs. Squeers was also the victim of a bad system, but that the man who sold Squeers his cane had really acted with great indiscretion and ought to be spoken to kindly. Something like this would be what, after four years, the Royal Commission would have said. But it would not matter in the least what the Royal Commission had said, for by that time the philanthropists would have been off on a new tack, and the world would have forgotten all about Dothboys Hall and everything connected with it. By that time the philanthropists would be petitioning Parliament for another royal commission, perhaps a royal commission to inquire into whether Mr. Mantellini was extravagant with his wife's money, perhaps a commission to inquire into whether Mr. Vincent Crumless kept the infant phenomenon short by means of gin. If we wish to understand the spirit and period of Nicholas Nickleby, we must endeavor to comprehend and to appreciate the old, more decisive remedies, or, if we prefer to put it so, the old, more desperate remedies. Our fathers had a plain sort of pity, if you will, a gross and coarse pity. They had their own sort of sentimentalism. They were quite willing to weep over Smike, but it certainly never occurred to them to weep over Squeers. Even those who opposed the French war opposed it exactly in the same way as their enemies opposed the French soldiers. They fought with fighting. Charles Fox was full of horror at the bitterness and useless bloodshed, but if anyone had insulted him over the matter, he would have gone out and shot him in a duel, as coolly as any of his contemporaries. All their interference was heroic interference. All their legislation was heroic legislation. All their remedies were heroic remedies. No doubt they were often narrow and often visionary. No doubt they often looked at a political formula when they should have looked at an elemental fact. No doubt they were pedantic in some of their principles and clumsy in some of their solutions. No doubt, in short, they were all very wrong, and no doubt we are the people, and wisdom shall die with us. But when they saw something which, in their eyes, such as they were, really violated their morality, such as it was, then they did not cry investigate, they did not cry educate, they did not cry improve, they did not cry evolve. Like Nicholas Nickleby, they cried stop, and it did stop. This is the first mark of the purely romantic method, the swiftness and simplicity with which St. George kills the dragon. The second mark of it is exhibited here, as one of the weaknesses of Nicholas Nickleby. I mean the tendency in the purely romantic story to regard the heroine 
merely as something to be won, to regard the princess solely as something to be saved from the dragon. The father of Madeleine Bray is really a very respectable dragon. His selfishness is suggested with much more psychological tact and truth than that of any other of the villains that Dickens described about this time. But his daughter is merely the young woman with whom Nicholas is in love. We do not care a rap about Madeleine Bray. Personally, I should have preferred Cecilia Bobster. Here is one real point where the Victorian romance falls below the Elizabethan romantic drama. Shakespeare always made his heroines heroic as well as his heroes. In Dickens' actual literary career, it is this romantic quality in Nicholas Nickleby that is most important. It is his first definite attempt to write a young and chivalrous novel. In this sense, the comic characters and the comic scenes are secondary. And indeed, the comic characters and the comic scenes, admirable as they are, could never be considered as in themselves superior to such characters and such scenes in many of the other books. But in themselves, how unforgettable they are. Mr. Crumless and the whole of his theatrical business is an admirable case of that first and most splendid quality in Dickens. I mean the art of making something which in life we call pompous and dull, becoming in literature pompous and delightful. I have remarked before that nearly every one of the amusing characters of Dickens is in reality a great fool. But I might go further. Almost every one of his amusing characters is in reality a great bore. The very people that we fly to in Dickens are the very people that we fly from in life. And there is more in Crumless than in the mere entertainment of his solemnity and his tedium. The enormous seriousness with which he takes his art is always an exact touch in regard to the unsuccessful artist. If an artist is successful, everything then depends upon a dilemma of his moral character. If he is a mean artist, success will make him a society man. If he is a magnanimous artist, success will make him an ordinary man. But only as long as he is unsuccessful, he will be an unfathomable and serious artist like Mr. Crumless. Dickens was always particularly good at expressing thus the treasures that belong to those who do not succeed in this world. There are vast prospects and splendid songs in the point of view of the typically unsuccessful man. If all the used-up actors and spoiled journalists and broken clerks could give a chorus, it would be a wonderful chorus in praise of the world. But these unsuccessful men commonly cannot even speak. Dickens is the voice of them, and a very ringing voice, because he was perhaps the only one of these unsuccessful men that was ever successful. End of section nine. End of chapter four. Nicholas Nickleby.